Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. It says, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. The word of God for the people of God. Well, in Tessa's prayer, I don't know if you caught this, but she uh, prayed that we would not just look for those little things that immediately apply to our lives. And this evening, I think that we have a, a, a strange text here that, at least for me over the past couple of weeks, where we are in this particular uh, spot in the book of Mark has been difficult to find immediate application. These texts are very much rooted within their first century Jewish context, and the things that Jesus is interacting with and the things that he is being put through might not necessarily uh, resonate with where we are, who we are, with what we're doing, and um, the things that we go through each and every day. I think that there's at least two things, though, that we can see in this text. So in a sense, I've got two sermons for us tonight. One is the very uh, first century Jewish rooted in history and literature sermon where we will try to understand what Jesus is, is doing in this teaching. But there's another one that's kind of beyond the surface where it seems as though we might be able to apply some of this thought in a very different way that might go beyond taxes, might go beyond politics, it might go beyond the imperial powers of the day. Specifically, the way that this text opens up, it, it introduces questions. This is the first of three so-called confrontation narratives where Jesus is again verbally attacked by the religious leaders of the day. They are wanting to find him in error. They are wanting to catch him in a way where he is speaking things that will allow him to be arrested and then potentially even killed because these religious leaders cannot quite understand what Jesus is doing and they want him to be completely removed from this system. They state, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. And I know that you can't hear tone in the text here, but just imagine the tone of these religious leaders as they, as they show up. These are the Herodians and the Pharisees, two groups that we'll look at here in a little bit. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. There's nothing that you can, can do to show partiality. You're completely fair. You're completely a person with integrity. And we know that you'll be able to answer this question. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're really buttering Jesus up here before they drop the bomb on him. The bomb is this. Is it right to pay the imperial tax or the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? They've done all of this flattery to get to this one question. Jesus, should we pay the tax? And just to place it in its proper historical context. Oh, snap! 
religious leaders all snap. You can see like they ask this question and they just start like high-fiving each other. Jesus, can you pay this tax or not? What? They're excited about what they're, what they're saying because they know that they've asked the unanswerable question for Jesus. What's going on behind the surface here is the people groups that are asking these questions, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they've got a story. The Roman rule of the time, there's a story and a background that's going on here and also just paying taxes, which even in our 21st century American context, we know that paying taxes is not the greatest thing of all time. When you get those 20 hours of hard working behind the coffee shop counter and you look at your paycheck at the end of the week and you've got some money that's gone, it might not be the best day of your life, but all of these factors are coming into this question that's being asked at the time. In particular, if we go back in time, we know that Herod the Great was reigning and ruling over this area, yet he was doing so in a subservient role underneath of Rome. Herod the Great dies in 4 BC, which for the Bible nerds in the group, do some quick math. Joseph and Mary and Jesus go down to Egypt to escape Herod the Great's wrath. So if we think that Jesus was born in zero, we are sadly mistaken because four years prior is when Herod the Great dies. When Herod the Great dies, in his will, he has allotted the kingdom to three of his sons. And Herod the Great's family history is a train wreck of all train wrecks. He's killing sons left and right. He's killing these people to try to stave off any sort of coup. It's kind of this uh, family-laden drama where Herod is trying to protect his own. But by the end of his life, he does find three sons that he wants to reign in his stead underneath of Rome as he passes away. So we have Philip in the north, we've got Herod Antipas in the north around the Sea of Galilee, and then we have Archelaus in the, the southern regions in Judea with Jerusalem and Jericho and those places. Now, it's important to note that with Herod and with him entrusting his reign and rule to these people, he has created for himself prior to his death a legacy of people that would support him. One scholar says the Herodians, in this sense, may refer to household servants or slaves of Herod, his officials or courtiers, or even more generally beyond that, all the supporters of Herod's regime, whether or not they belong to an organized group or party. The Herodians, on a very base level, were supportive of Rome and what Rome was doing because Rome was funding Herod and his empire. They were attached to Rome. So for the Herodians to be asking Jesus about paying taxes, it seems as though they are going to be aligning themselves with Rome and with the tax because with that, they also get paid, okay? So, we have the Herodians here who are involved in asking Jesus this question, but more backstory behind this is Archelaus, who was given the southern region in Judea and Jerusalem in particular. Archelaus was a terrible, terrible, terrible ruler. Nobody even wanted him to be in power from the very beginning. People from all over would even, in fact, go to Rome to petition to get Archelaus out of power. And in 6 AD, 
the Roman rulers do in fact remove Archelaus, but what they do is instead of granting this region to another one of Herod's kids, to another one of the Jews, Rome steps in and takes over. And when that happens, taxes go through the roof. The people are kind of just stuck in the middle between do we want this crazy, heretical, uh, just dictator-type ruler in Archelaus, or do we want to pay these taxes? They, in a sense, have to make these decisions. But in 6 AD, when Archelaus is removed and Quirinius is brought in to do a census and to, to take the taxes from people, it creates a revolt. One Jewish uh, rebel, I guess you could call him, Judas of Galilee, says this. This is uh, in Josephus's account of this Story. He says, Judas of Galilee called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and for putting up with mortal masters in place of God. For Judas, who leads this revolt, no, we will not pay Rome this money. We must serve God. Rome has nothing to do with us. And he led this little band of rebels that got immediately squashed by the powers that be, but you can see that within this time frame, this is some 20 to 25 years before Jesus, the people are ticked, the people are upset, there are rival political parties, if you will, the zealots are starting to come into uh, fruition where people are just wanting to completely remove Roman power. Regarding the taxes, one scholar says that the total taxation of the Jewish people in the time of Jesus, both civil and religious combined, because remember, you're paying taxes when you're entering these regions, you're paying taxes at the temple, you're paying taxes all over the place. Civil and religious taxes combined must have approached the intolerable proportion of between 30 and 40%, and it may have been higher still. So in Jesus' time, when these religious leaders show up and say, should we pay this tax, this imperial poll tax, it is a burdensome question that Jesus is forced to answer. It's a lose-lose question. It's a tails I win, heads you lose sort of question, where either way, either answer, he's going to tick people off, potentially even leading to his death. N.T. Wright says, these folks, these religious leaders, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they're trying to force Jesus either to support the paying of taxes to Rome, thus alienating the crowds, because these people were sick and tired of paying taxes. And if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, then those people are going to go nuts. Or they're enticing Jesus to denounce the tax, in which case they would tell the governor, who's Pontius Pilate at this time, the, the Roman governor who's in charge of this area, that Jesus was guilty of a straightforward capital charge, namely inciting revolt. In Mark chapter 3, it's the Herodians and the Pharisees that want to plot together to kill Jesus. And this is one of their best efforts, to get him to say the wrong thing at the right time, to demonstrate himself to be the one who is aligning with the wrong party, and thus pay the price for it with his life. But Jesus, the text said, knew their hypocrisy. N.T. Wright translates it, but Jesus knew the game they were playing. He sees right through the charade. He sees right through the flattery. He sees right through all of the, the kind and, and nice words that try to butter him up. 
He knows exactly what they're wanting him to do, and he's going to answer them in a different way. He says, why are you trying to trap me or test me? This verb that's used here in the Greek is also used in Mark chapter 1, where it refers to Jesus being tested in the wilderness by the devil. In a sense, the acts of these religious leaders are being united with the acts of the devil. Pause for a moment. What the religious leaders are doing in Jesus' mind is akin to what the devil has been doing. Why are you trying to trap me or test me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, we don't get this in our 21st century American context, but this is a, oh, snap, Jesus. Now you've done it. This is one of the best answers that Jesus could come back with. Bring me a denarius. Because what he's doing is saying, I don't have one, but you do, and I'd like to see it because I'm not sure if I remember what's on there. Can you, the people that are asking me about Roman taxes, provide me with the coin in which you pay the Roman taxes? Oh, snap, Jesus. Now, this is a denarius. We know commonly that we've heard these stories, at least for the folks that have spent time in church, a denarius is a day's wage, but a denarius, especially a silver one here, is also used to pay this Roman poll tax. It's interesting that Jesus, because he's from Galilee, was not one that had to pay this tax. He's one from the north who's coming down into Judea here, and this is something that was simply um, or localized to the Judean people. This is not Jesus' burden to bear, and they're trying to entrap Jesus by having him post commentary on this. But you can see on this coin, there is a figure on the front side. That is Tiberius. Tiberius was the ruler of the time, and the inscription around it, it's in capital letters, and some of it's shortened, but it basically says Tiberius Caesar. Caesar was kind of a... a, um, a kingly title that was given to the rulers in Rome of the time, Tiberius Caesar, son of the deified Augustus, the Caesar that came before him, his kid. Tiberius, son of God. On the back side of the coin, it says uh, Pontifex Maximus, which is high priest. So it's no wonder that the Jews of this time were completely and utterly bent out of shape, not just of paying 30 to 40% of their income, whatever that looks like. I know they're not getting stuff taken out of their paycheck, but whatever that looks like. But this was also a slap in the face religiously because now they have the leader of Rome saying, I am son of God and I am high priest. Joel Marcus says there would be good reasons for Jews to be outraged at the requirement that they pay their taxes in this sort of coin. Side note as well, there were other coins. So when Jesus says, bring me this denarius, show it to me, I don't have one, it's very possible for a Jewish person to be paying for their day-to-day stuff with copper coins, not having the ones with this kind of uh, religiously defamatory insignia on it. Uh, Joel Marcus continues, not only does this coin portray the emperor as the highest official of the Roman religion, but it also makes him an object of that religion. High priest, son of God, worthy of worship. 
Jesus' questioners here apparently are carrying these coins, but Jesus does not, which sort of helps to frame this issue. The people that are trying to entrap him have actually taken sides already in this debate. They've got the coin, they can pay the taxes, because at the end of the day, they're going to profit off of the reign of Rome, and they're going to profit off of their oppressing of people. Jesus responds with, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So it starts kind of cheeky where Jesus says, bring me a coin, I don't have one, you do. But then he goes beyond that and replies not with a yes or a no, but he elevates the discussion by saying, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The supposed dilemma here, remember in the beginning when the religious leaders kind of drop the mic and walk away and start giving everybody high fives, there's no way Jesus is going to be able to answer this, no way. Because if he says yes, he's going to tick these people off, and he says no, he's going to tick those people off. But what Jesus does, he sort of sidesteps the whole issue and reframes it, and the dilemma is completely undone. Jesus is demonstrating himself not to be anti-Roman, not to be a zealot nationalist, because he's saying Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The coin's got his face on it. It's got his insignia on it. Yeah, give it to him. We're living in this place and we're under their rule, so yeah, pay the tax. But he goes beyond that by saying, but I'm not so pro-Roman that I don't also see what else is going on here. Give to God what is God's. It's sort of a both and instead of an either or, and the religious leaders have no idea how to respond to this, and the text just says they were amazed at him. In these three stories that we'll see today and then in the next weeks to come, these people are amazed at what Jesus does and how he responds to these very difficult issues. But what I want you to see in this particular story, as we set aside the, the concerns with taxes and politics and church and state for a moment and we understand what Jesus is doing and how he's responding, he's not engaging yes and no. He's elevating the discussion. He's attempting to get people to see something completely different. R.T. France says, instead of setting loyalty to God and to Caesar in opposition to each other, the straightforward meaning of Jesus' words is that both may be maintained at the same time. Jesus is providing an example of what it looks like for us to live in the tension. For any of you that know me and know where I've been living for the last two, three, five years of my life, this is a phrase that resonates so deeply with me. Living in the midst of tension, where it's not quite as simple as yes or no, black or white. At times, living faithfully to Jesus means living in the tension, living in the I don't know, but I'm trusting. Living in the midst of, this is really difficult, and instead of me completely reducing your situation or my situation or our situation to a pat answer that you've already heard, I will choose instead to sit with you in brokenness and suffering and heartache, knowing that God will be present. But what that looks like, I don't know. At times it doesn't look like healing, at times it doesn't look like 
reconciliation in the way that we think. At times it looks like something completely different than what we could anticipate. Yet we find ourselves in the midst, not of yes or no, both and. We find ourselves in the midst of tension and we see Jesus in this very simple passage that's not quite so simple when you get beyond it, is giving us an example of what that actually looks like. All of this does beg the question though. Okay, Jesus, we're supposed to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, but what in the world is Caesar's and what in the world is God's? For most Americans, the way that we read this text is with undertones of separation of church and state. Yep, Caesar's over here and we do that and we try to do that well and God's over here and we try to do that and we do that well and then ne'er the two shall meet. But in a first century context, those constructs were not fathomable. To separate those things into different compartments is not how they viewed life. There's a mildly controversial teacher out there that did a talk called Everything is Spiritual where he says there really are no boundaries between spiritual and secular, sacred. It's all like, it's all God's. So for people in our context to see what in the world this means for us, it's important to note that there are moments when there is great overlap between us being good citizens and us being good followers of Jesus. And yet, there are also moments when there's a demand on us to stand up for justice in the face of systemic evil, in the face of organizations and systems that are meant to oppress where it's our job to step out in faithfulness to God to fight for people. What is Caesar's and what is God's? There's, there's an underlying implication in this story, even in the grammar and the way that it's phrased with the superiority of God. There's a way that you could look at that last phrase, give to God what is God's. That's everything that you have and everything that I have and everything that we will have is God's. Our money, our talent, our time, every little bit about us is his. And we are supposed to give that back in some meaningful way. Not just for ourselves, at times that means giving it back in a way that helps to stand up for people. The impact that the superior, superiority of God has on us is we live in a way that respects people as image bearers of God. We could stop this talk right here and just leave it there where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's and ask ourselves the big, huge question, are we in fact giving God what is God's? in our work, in our home life, in our relationships, in the way that we treat our friends and the people around us, are we allowing ourselves to be instruments that are used by him in ways that we could not anticipate? Are we willing and obedient? Are we submissive in the sense of we will go to the places that we don't want to go and be what we can't feel strong enough to be on our own because that's where we're called and that's what we're supposed to do. I found myself over the last couple of weeks just thinking through some of this stuff and asking myself if I am demonstrating me, Josh, to be one who's obedient to Jesus in all things. Not preaching sermons, not singing songs, but walking my dog at home with Kate. 
when it's 2.30 in the morning and Jude is screaming and Kate is about to pull every last piece of her hair out of her head and all I want to do is roll over and just go back to sleep? Is that something that's honoring not just my wife, but is that something that's honoring God? When we're at work and we hate it, the people around us are just driving us crazy and we feel no purpose and we feel no calling and we feel like we shouldn't even be there, are we still able to move beyond that and say, I'm willing to be who you want me to be today, God, use me. This call that Jesus is allowing us to respond to is so weighty, but it's so good. And I don't stand here before you as one that has it figured out. In fact, I stand here as one before you that is just one of you that is trying with everything that, that I have and hopefully that we have to figure this out and to live it out in a way where we demonstrate the superiority of God in every aspect of our lives. Again, for the Christians in the room, the people that have professed faith in Jesus, can anybody tell? Can your family tell? Can your friends tell? Can your coworkers tell? Or is this something that's so privatized that it's nearly worthless. There's one more part of this story that I want us to, to see and to engage, and I think that what Jesus is doing here, and I hinted at this earlier, he's providing us a model for the explosive situations that we find ourselves in where we are the ones that are receiving the yes or the no, the black or the white, the is it or the isn't it sort of questions. And we see Jesus doing this in a way that... Um, is exemplary and something that maybe there's at least something that we should be striving for to implement in our own lives. It's worth noting, I was reading a book last week and the author said that of the 25 times in the New Testament that Jesus has asked a yes or a no question, the amount of times that he responds with a yes or a no answer are very few. I believe it's three, three to five. The amount of times that Jesus just responds in the way that his questioners want him to respond is few. Instead, what Jesus does is he elevates the conversation and leaves people thinking not only about their own position but about what God is wanting them to realize. One author says, I don't know any believer who doesn't want to be like Jesus. And here is our chance to be just a little more like him. Stop asking and answering closed-ended questions in an attempt to determine if someone is on our team or their team. Even within the family, even within the church, even within uh, brothers and sisters, there's a time when we attempt to isolate and divide and put people into categories. And what this author is saying, based on Jesus' uh, interaction with the religious leaders is, let's not do that. He continues, Jesus modeled a life about kingdom ways and kingdom thinking, not pinning down or getting pinned down by circularly legalistic debates of politically charged matters. N.T. Wright frames it in a way that might be a little bit more accessible. The kingdom of God goes beyond the sterile either-or questions which crafty people, often with flattery, as here in this passage, like to pose. And then he prays this prayer. God, grant us wisdom to see the heart of things and to give ourselves wholly to our true God and King. I think there are moments that we find ourselves in the 
polarity between yes and no, between black and white, and we oftentimes forget the tension that lies in the middle. We forget to see the heart of things by identifying very coolly and very casually what is right and what is wrong. And this is not a talk on losing convictions or not having a backbone, but this is a talk of seeing at least in specific moments. There are difficult questions that are posed to us and our best bet is to pray the prayer, God grant us the wisdom to see the heart of things, perhaps before we launch in to taking a hard line stance on one side of the aisle or the other side of the aisle. But this passage, set within its first century context where Jesus is dealing with an admittedly angry group of people that have been heavily taxed, he elevates the conversation beyond that. It's not just about the tax. It's about giving God what is God's. And the question for us tonight, I don't think is much different. In our lives, are we giving superiority to God and the things that are due him? Do we allow him to receive those with willingness and obedience? My hope tonight is that wherever we are, we would be able to elevate those conversations between this way or that way and find Jesus in the tension of life where at times it's difficult to discern what's going on and where he is leading but in the midst of that to trust and to pray along with N.T. Wright, God grant us the wisdom, grant us the wisdom to see the heart of things. Wherever you are and whatever it is that you're going through, I pray along with you that we together would be able to see the heart of things. And my hope is that for all of us, we would find in the centermost point, Jesus, as our, as our tether, who allows us to plant a stake in the ground, knowing that we cannot be shaken even in the midst of the difficulties that we will go through here and now.